Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Clinical Social Work Journal podcast. I am Melissa Grady, and I'm very excited to be here with Michelle Newcomb, all the way from Australia. It was a little bit of an interesting process finding a time where we were both awake and um, able to. You're, I'm in the evening, you're in the morning, a day ahead of us here. So um, yeah, that was, that was an interesting process trying to just find a time. But um, the article we're going to be talking about today is how to be yourself, student perspectives on learning use of self, which I think is a super, super fascinating topic because it comes up all the time in the classroom. It comes up in internships. And I think it also comes up once we're, um, we're supervising students out in the field or new, new practitioners out in the field. And this, I think... Um, I'll let you talk about the point of the article, obviously, in just a second. But the thing that really grabbed me about this article is that you're not just talking about the generic use of self, but really also thinking about when people have histories of adversity and what to do with that part of themselves and how to integrate that into who they are professionally, personally. And then I think the bigger question is, what do we do with that um, as social workers? So, um, I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell little our listeners a little bit about who you are and your work. And then if you could just give a brief overview of the study and what your primary aims were of the study. Um, so my name is Dr. Michelle Newcomb uh, and I work at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia, or Mianjin is its traditional name. Um, and this particular paper, so I'm a lecturer in social work there, and this particular paper came out of my PhD study. So I did, actually did a PhD by publication. So I, I managed to, to find a lot of good findings and publish them from the PhD. And I, I had a mixed method study. So I interviewed around 20 students and I surveyed, um, I think it was around 250 students across a couple of universities. And what I was looking at is this kind of notion of the wounded healer or in particular childhood adversity. And the topic came about because uh, whilst I was doing my PhD and really before that, and as a practitioner before that in practice land, uh, there would always be quite often people who would disclose personal information about themselves in the classroom and with clients while they're on their student practicums. Um, and, you know, there was always a tension around, well, what do you say and what do you not say? And what level of self-disclosure is okay and in what context? And um, so it's kind of this murky landscape, but there's also, I think, a level of stigma often around people who have an adverse background coming into a helping profession, which is silly because most people in a helping profession have an adverse background. Um, but we still sort of have a bit of a stigma and we think that those people might be kind of a little bit damaged, uh, might harm the clients that we work with. Um, I suppose I took the perspective in my study of thinking about, well, what are the strengths that those people might bring as well? And those strengths might be things like, you know, a resilience or um, a greater attunement with clients as well. So use of self came up in the study because it's, um, often presented in a dichotomy, the professional and the personal self. And I sort of would argue within that article, I was talking about um, that relational use of self, you know, like that it's not ever, we're not ever just 
our personal self and our professional self with this kind of weird mixture. Um, and we have to get through that kind of murkiness and decide, well, what, what parts of ourselves do we present in what areas, you know, and how do those things integrate? And maybe be a little bit kind on ourselves sometimes when, when there is a bit of a seepage between both, you know. <laughs> That's okay to do that. Well, and I think you're raising the question it, when you say a relational use of self, I think one of the things that's interesting is that depending on your theoretical framework that you're using in your own practice and your clinical work, that self is used very differently, potentially, um, you know, in, in the traditional Freudian way, you're the blank slate, you're behind people, you're not even visually yeah. on the scene. And in CBT, you're, you're more of, not well, many ways you're a coach, you are, te- you're a teacher. Um, the relationship is absolutely critical, but it's not as focused on relational patterns that are often seen and manifest and come out in the therapeutic relationship, like you would in an intersubjective relationship experience, if you were using that model, um, in your practice. So I do think it's it's interesting, depending on the, the modality, this relational self, you are the tool. You, you, I mean, how you form relationship with clients and how you use that relationship is the backbone of the work. So it's super yeah. fascinating from that point of view of examining the tool, which is the relationship. Well, it is the relationship, but it's also, I come from a critical social work perspective, which has got those foundations in sort of postmodernism. So I think about that relationship, not just between myself and the client, it's my, the client's relationship with the broader world and with the social oppression that they probably experienced, as well as my relationship, past, present, future, Mm -hmm. with some of those, you know, social structures or ecosystems. So um, it can be very broad when we talk about I think we often think relational is just a relationship, but we have relationships with lots of different things. You know, we have a relationship with the physical environment, with the with with yeah. with climate change. Yeah. All of those things, those big issues. So um I think that's a really important message. And and in the psychoanalytic literature, they talk about the analytic third or this tri like the therapeutic third that gets this unique Venn diagram between the uniqueness of the client and the uniqueness of the social worker and that overlap and how unique that is. But I think what you're also having me visualize is the multiple rings around each of um, those individuals to make up a very complex picture that then comes together with that Venn diagram, but influenced so much by so many different external factors um, and how all of those bump up against each other in that relationship. Absolutely. It's a bigger network, isn't it? It's yeah. a really big network. So uh, in that place where we're meeting, where we're getting that kind of therapeutic alliance, um, lots of things could inform that. Mm-hmm. So my experience of poverty and the client's experience of poverty might be a part of that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't necessarily always mean I'm disclosing my experience of poverty to get to right. that place. Right. Right. So what would you say were some of the main take-home messages from this particular part of your study? 
I think um, that the use of self doesn't have to be dichotomous. So sometimes I feel like in practice we're told we're social workers or, you know, a helping professional and we have to be professional and this is what a professional looks like, almost like we put on a mask when we go into work. And to some extent we, we do do that and sometimes you have to do that in some environments to survive them. But I think to really connect with people, you can't be wearing a mask. I mean, it's an interesting metaphor for these times, really. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, it, it's hard. It's hard to understand what people are saying and um, their meaning when they're behind a mask, I suppose. So mm-hmm. I, I think this I, sort of dichotomy between the personal and professional is something that needs to be really deconstructed somewhat. And But that takes work. And I think you have to be really committed as a practitioner, you know, especially as an emerging practitioner, to do that work, to really think about who am I, what are the experiences I'm bringing into this, what of those do I want to share and who would I share them with, you know, mm-hmm. like, and that is continual because it changes because we change all the mm-hmm. time, you know. Um, I have children, they were smaller, now they're older. So what do I, in the classroom context, should I share stories about them? Is that appropriate? You know, I have to think about, well, what stories do I share? Some are more appropriate um, than others because I have to protect their privacy as well. So we ha- it's a constant moving kind of beast, that use of self, you know, what you bring and what you disclose to people and how you present. You might be having a particularly difficult time in your life, so it's actually really important for you when you go to work to be a bit guarded and to not share much because you don't have that kind of, emotional energy the the resources are low so so you have to present in a different different kind of way you can't bring all of yourself maybe that time and that's maybe that's okay for Uh us to to kind of think about that but that kind of nexus with like using your use of self and being able to critically reflect um, engage in supervision they're all really important and I think they're really ongoing they don't just you don't just suddenly get to a point and go, oh, I understand my use of self as a social worker okay. and now I'll be fantastic, you know. So how do you actually define use of self? What is your conceptual framework or definition or description that when you talk about it, what, how are you personally describing use of self? Well, it's what you yourself, you you know, as a person, the personhood that you bring into your practice. And so that can be all sorts of things, right? Because if we think about self-disclosure, we always think about it as what people say, but self-disclosure happens in uh, what we wear, how we present ourselves, the language that we use, all of that. So if I'm working with a particular client group, I might even think about that. How am I going to physically present myself to, to people? What um, but also it's about being authentic. Your use of self is is what can you authentically bring this person? And so sometimes that authenticity is, you know, a little bit prescribed by the job, but mm-hmm. um, sometimes that authenticity is about who we actually are. So if I'm working with young people, I'm unfortunately not a young person anymore. So <laughs> I have to be realistic about what I can bring to that kind of relationship. Now I'm older, it might it might be a different kind of qualities that I bring to that relationship. So it's very, I think a good use of self is still client-centered as well in terms of what does that um, client need or, you know, now I'm an educator, I think, well, what does that student need? Sometimes some students need, you know, a little bit of soft talking, a little bit of working around. Sometimes some students need to be told that 
you know, they need to step up a little bit and that things, they need to work a bit harder in order to gain their qualifications. So, yeah, I think that authenticity is important um, in, in terms of, and while you're there thinking about your motivations, what am I here for? You know, what's driving me? What are those values, those beliefs, those ethics that are driving me? Um, and that, that, that allows us to be authentic. One of the things um, that I often say to clients is how, how is what you're doing moving the work forward to the client? How, how is you disclosing this information in the service of the client? And it's hard to know in the moment um, because sometimes people have this urge to just share, yes, I know what you're talking about because I also had da 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 And I, I often share an example of something that happened in my own personal life where I had a friend who had a very similar event in his life, but my goodness, our families managed that almost exact same crisis in completely different ways. And so everybody's history is so unique. And just because on paper, you can say, oh, we shared a similar experience, that doesn't mean that it's the same. And that you understand that individual's experience or that family's experience sitting across from you. And the importance of making sure that we're not making assumptions that just because you've you know, you can check a box off a particular experience form that that means that you get everybody else's experience. And, and people say, yeah, I know that I know that, but it's so easy. And we're so socially, um, socialized to say, oh yeah, I went to that place too. Or, oh, I know I, my mom also did blah, 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 blah. Um, and to really check yourself and think, is this because I'm anxious and I'm trying to make a connection? How does this help the client if I'm sharing this piece about me versus them? So it's there's a lot of conversations that have to happen up there in your head. Um, and I often say, when it's out, don't. You can always go back. But once it's out, it's out. I think that people think it's a shortcut. You know, like I think yes. you, you said then people get anxious. I think that's really true. And I, I I remember doing this as a practitioner thinking, I really want to connect with this kind of client and, and build this alliance. And so, you know, you think it's an easy way of doing that if you have a commonality with, with the person because that works in most social settings, right? Like in a business exactly. setting, in a, you know, at church, wherever. You know, we want to try and find this common link. But that's not necessarily what the client is there for because they're not there to be your friend right mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, they're there to be listened to and to be heard and you know maybe to, to problem solve some issues so the other thing is like does it benefit the client but also how would you know that it benefits the client um, and I think that's so if you have a self-disclosure and then the client just kind of ignores it and keeps moving on maybe it wasn't that helpful for them yeah <laughs> You know, so maybe 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 pull back on that a little bit. Um, and I think when we're talking about things that are particularly traumatic as well, that idea that um, our experience will be comparable to somebody else's, we just know that trauma doesn't work like that. So that's a that's a very simplistic kind of way of thinking about yeah. it. And, you know, I, I think probably in the bin with that idea. Yeah. 
<laughs> the other thing that I think is really important to always remember around, I know we're talking about self-disclosure, which is just one piece of use of self, but um, confidentiality is not a, they're not bound by it in the way that we are. So once you choose to disclose whatever you want to disclose, they can, they can share anything and everything with anyone about Absolutely. what yep. you have just shared in your yep. private session. Um, and I've, I've had colleagues who've had a number of issues that have come up as a result of that, where clients have then posted things on a blog or shared with um, other clients who were at the same agency. Um, yeah. And then your now your information is out there and maybe you wouldn't have wanted that information mm -hmm. for this other client because of your own clinical reasons for that. Um, so that's another piece that I don't think people necessarily think through. We are bound not to share anything, but yeah. the clients are not. I think that's a really good point because I like a benchmark in this day and age I often say to my students is if you wouldn't post it on social media <laughs> then don't disclose it because that's at the worst case scenario that's where that information could end up and so yeah. particularly in the classroom I say that to them because in Australia uh, our classrooms are really big we might have hundreds of students in our lectures I think mm -hmm. in America often they're a bit smaller um, but you know if I've got hundreds of people in a lecture I can't I don't know what anyone's going to do with that information that could that, that could be live streaming that I have no idea you yeah. know yeah. Um, that's where that's going to go so yeah we have to be a little bit you know it's okay to be a little bit private sometimes as well mm -hmm. I think we live in an age where um, you know Foucault would say you know if you tell something out loud if you say something out loud uh, it becomes a truth. And so that's what we've come to think is if I say it out loud, it's true. And so the more people I tell my my story to, the, the more believable it is, the more real it is. But that's not actually the case, right? Things can be true just even if you don't say them out loud. You can carry a secret your whole life. I'm not right. saying you should, but 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 right. and it can still be a true thing that happened. So um I think there's merit in in being a little bit reserved sometimes in in what we say and how we say it with people. That's okay to do that as well to have to maintain some privacy and it can be a very dignified thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's an um, an article that I assign to my students um, when I teach sort of the beginning practice class. It's by Dwayne. You actually cite it in your yep. um, in your article, and I I love that article and. Um, you know, I think it's just so important for, for students as they're starting off to, to have this conversation at the front end to really think about it. So what do you think for social work supervisors, educators, mentors, what do you think we're doing right in terms of helping students think about this? And then also, what could we be doing? What could we be doing differently or better? I think um, that's an interesting question, actually. I'm, I think we do often talk about this, but we talk about it when we're teaching kind of like counselling and communication skills. So it becomes this kind of um, part of our therapeutic kind of part of our social work practice. And that's, that's great and that's suitable. But I think 
it it needs to be a little bit more cohesive than that because the self-disclosure or that use of self, it happens in lots of different areas. You know, like I was talking about clothing before. So if I have a student who's going to go and do a practicum in a prison, it's really important I actually talk to them about, well, what, what is an appropriate thing for you to wear as a young woman working in a male prison, you know? <laughs> like, it doesn't happen very often, but... Um, or in a youth justice kind of community setting. Um, what part of yourself do you want to present in that environment? What's going to be appropriate there and make everyone a little bit more comfortable? So we would, I think it's important to have those conversations there, but I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, things like trigger warnings in uh, lectures and in content. And, you know, it's kind of contentious and I, I think it's something I'll write about in the future, but maybe that's a good time to be kind of talking about that use of self, I think, because uh, I think it's a big statement, like a trigger warning, when we think of that word trigger, what it normally means in a kind of mental health kind of setting or context um, compared to watching something in a classroom that might actually, maybe it doesn't actually trigger us, it just makes us really uncomfortable, you know, mm -hmm. or, or we experience discomfort, which can be an important learning tool because we need to go through that phase of discomfort, because especially if it's bringing up some, something around our adverse histories, we want to have that discomfort in the learning space, not in the practice space. So that can be a really important time to talk about that. So uh, I think, you know, it's it's another variation on the argument, this idea around triggers, right? It's, it's around similar kind of context. So maybe when we're giving trigger warnings, then that's a time to talk about that use of self as well. And that's that's what I tend to do with my students. Um, but I think that would be more useful conversation than just saying, oh, I'm gonna talk about, I don't know, child sexual abuse now, and that might trigger some people. So please look after yourself, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, I take that further with students and sort of say, you know, that may be really difficult for you and uncomfortable, but the fact is most clients or many clients in social work practice, they're going to have a very similar experience to this and you're going to hear these stories. So um, it's fine if you don't want to participate today, but you need to work out from here to graduation what you need to do to get to a point where you can hear those stories, mm -hmm. um, you know. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I've just had an, a, a number of conversations with other colleagues about these topics and how students um, are struggling sometimes in the classroom, even tolerating the topic. And I was, um, I've been involved in a project with one of the developed, two of the developers of trauma-focused CBT, and even the word trigger, she says she has stopped using because that prompts people to think of guns and people who've experienced gun violence. A trigger is, around shooting. And so yeah. she talks about trauma memories or um, trauma reminders instead of even just the word trigger um, yeah. because of how that can prompt for some people the association with gun violence. And so the language I think is again, this is again, use of self of what even words do we choose to uh, communicate and talk about difficult topics. And, um, and I, I really think what you said is, is incredibly important for people with adverse histories coming into the field, that there are going to be times in the classroom that there are going to be topics that are going to remind them of their own past histories and, mm. and what do they need to do? And how can we as faculty, supervisors, mentors support them 
from that point to, as you said, graduation, because they are going to be exposed. I mean, that is the nature of the work. And so what are the things that we can do to support them? And I don't know that we're, it's a tricky thing. Are we responsible as social work educators and supervisors to to provide that for them? Or is this something that we identify for them and then they go and do that work on, on their own? Is it a mix? I think that's, I, you know, I don't know that we have a clear answer for that. I, I know it's sometimes something that, um, depending on the hat you wear, the, the boundaries around that are, are more blurry depending on your, on your role with that particular client. Or students, sorry, students. Yeah, I think here, because our class sizes are so big with students, it's a little bit uh, clearer, that demarcation. Um, but the university also does often provide a lot of support services. But I'll often say to students, these are some of the things you might find helpful if you if you do move need to go through that process. And, and that might actually be like, you know, seeing a therapist or seeing a social worker themselves in their, their own time or... You know, just a counsellor of some sort might be useful, but, you know, it might be self-care behaviours. It might be starting to talk about that with people they feel comfortable with and they trust and, you know, mm-hmm. all of those. I would often go through those kinds of options with people. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I, I once had a student say to me after um, this person disclosed some information and um, and and we had to have a conversation or I felt we needed to have a conversation about um, that I'm not the therapist in this role, but I'm actually a faculty member and a professor and and, yeah. and trying to help create that boundary yet in the context of a very supportive relationship. Um, but I think yes. it's, I think it's, you know, supervision, if people are disclosing it, I think that becomes even um, somewhat confusing for people because in, in many, um, theoretical frameworks, sharing your counter-transference, sharing your reaction, sharing your own, um, identifications with the client can be incredibly helpful. Um, but then where's the line on that? And how do we help again, always in the service of the client, keep that perspective that it's the client's best interests. And yet, how do we also support the student at the same time or the supervisee? Yeah, I think with supervision, though, that, um, you know, relational aspect is really important. I'm coming back to the relational again. But, you know, because traditionally when we talk about supervision, there's the administrative kind of context, you know, where we're talking about how many clients are you seeing and what's the progress here? Are they meeting their goals? That kind of stuff. There's an educative element to supervision, you know, which is all the... Uh, learning new things, learning new skills, new ideas, theories, which is great. And then there's that supportive element. But I think supervision gets stuck often in the administrative element Mm -hmm. and that supportive element where you would talk about counter-transference or transference or over-identification with the client. That is such a, you know, murky and difficult conversation and it requires like almost a therapeutic alliance with the supervisor and the supervisee Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of supervisors just don't even go there right so that 
I think it is a really important conversation and I think supervision is the place for that conversation, but I think it just gets overshadowed by like the business needs of the organisation sometimes, which is a real shame because, you know, that, that social worker then is not working at their best. They're not working at their prime mm-hmm. um, because they're not getting that kind of support to talk about those kinds of things. And, you know, supervision is a good place to do that rather than in the office or with, with a client or, yeah. It's a learning opportunity too, to do exactly what you're talking about is how do I use myself in the service of the client and show up as my authentic self. And they need to have as exactly as you say, that holding environment within supervision, I think to feel that they can share all of themselves and how they're feeling in the context of their work with the clients in order for them to be able to get the kind of supervision that is going to be most helpful. And I'm thinking about clients who are, I mean, sorry, students who might be um, prompted with all sorts of trauma memories, but don't feel safe enough to talk about that in supervision and then react in ways that are ultimately potentially dangerous or harmful in some way to themselves, but also to the client because they're not feeling comfortable with sharing these concerns and worries and feelings that they're having about all the things that are coming up for them in the work. It's such a, it's, it's not just a lost teaching opportunity and learning opportunity, but it's, it can potentially have unfortunate consequences too. Well, for the client, but also for the student, because that student's at risk of dropping out at that stage as well. Because particularly on placements, we might see that. And and what we'll see is is problems with the placement or problems with the student's behaviour on the placement. And by then it's almost too late because it's just everyone is rushing in. It's Band-Aid mode. We just want to fix the problem. Um, But what probably would have fixed the problem is that student being held and supported a little bit more, you know, because some people need that. Some people, absolutely. problem with bureaucracies is like that we might say, oh, Every student gets one hour of supervision a week or, or, or whatever is the rule. Um, but some people might need two hours and some people only need one hour a fortnight. But we, we don't always have that flexibility to provide that for people. So, um, you know, it ends up very bureaucratic and standardised and that just doesn't fit for everyone. Yeah. Well, we need a parallel process. We talk about having client-centred services and we need student-centred centered services. So yeah. I think, you know, that's... We need individualized treatment plans and we need individualized learning plans. Um, so there's, it's again, a very parallel process. That um, sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just have to contact our various accreditation boards and just, you know, make it happen. So ours is, ours is this week. Ours is actually happening. The Council for Social Work Education um, annual program meeting is happening right now in California. So um, I'll just tell everybody when I'm there what should happen and we'll just, and it's in Disneyland. So it's in Anaheim, California. So I'll just get my magic wand and make it happen. Um, So we are getting close to the end of time. And so I would love it if you could just, I guess, summarize for you what you really feel like you took away from this work and also where you feel like the field needs to go next with it. And, and then the last part would be 
what advice would you give to supervisors, students, and or educators? So your summary, I know I'm doing the stacking questions, which you're never supposed to do, but um, you know, what are some major lessons learned for you? Where do we need to go next? And then just some advice that you would give for- Yeah, sure. I think the word that sort of springs out to me when I think about the first part of the stack is that is stigma, you know, that I was really surprised in the research and I'm still surprised when I work with students how much stigma they hold, like self-stigma they hold around having a history of adversity. Mm. And sometimes um, we forget that, like because we think, well, we're social workers, we're we're cool, we're cool with adversity. That's that's our job, social justice. Um, but for students, this is their kind of initiation. They're coming into the profession and just the stigma that people still feel, it's really real and it's very limiting for people. And so when you feel that stigma, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to have inappropriate self-disclosures and you're, um, you know, I had a student say to me recently that they felt uncomfortable about somebody else's use of self-disclosure. Um, and I said, well, they're learning, you know, yeah, it's uncomfortable for all of us, but they're, this is a process of learning. And so it's not just the self-disclosure, it might be any fault, you know, it's going to be errors. I suppose, in how people decide what they bring um, to their practice and to their learning. And I think particularly as educators or supervisors of emerging practitioners, we need to be a little bit patient here, but we need to invest time as well. And, you know, this is a concern, I suppose, with COVID and people working from home a lot more. Uh, are those emerging and young practitioners getting that investment of time from people? Um, because those errors are going to happen. And, and that it is going to be ongoing work for us to integrate what part you're authentically giving to people in what way and, and where and how you want to do that, I suppose. That's, that's continual and you need a lot of support and supervision around that. But if we don't provide, you know, some care and some supervision and support for people, they leave, they'll leave our profession. And we don't, we don't want that because actually people with lived experience you know, particularly of adversity, they have so many strengths that they bring, you know, they're resilient. They, they are the proof of the pudding, right? They, a lot of them have been service users. They've seen yeah. social workers and they've yeah. come out the other side. And so that is amazing. We should be celebrating that, I think, rather than, um, so it's still surprising, rather than celebrating it, people are still feeling that stigma. So I think um, just, just keep talking about it is what we need to do as educators is keep keep talking about it and I think the advice that you should never disclose anything or you need to act in a particular way at all times to be a professional is really alienating for people and it's it's a simple solution but it's not helpful so if that's the message we're giving people still and what is it 2022 um then then I think you know, we're a bit outdated, really. We need to kind of, you know, move with the times a bit more and, and decrease that stigma. It's very important. I want to just give a shout out to my colleague, Jennifer Charles, who works in my university at Catholic University um, in the National School of Social Service, um, who studies stigma and in mental health. And she's actually started on our campus uh, a chapter of Active Minds to really try and destigmatize mental illness. And I think her work and others are really trying to do exactly what you're advising is to try and allow these conversations to happen without the shame, without the judgment, and to 
um, but with acceptance so that people, again, can feel like they show up with their authentic selves. Yeah, and I think it extends beyond mental health. It's poverty, it's homelessness, Absolutely. you know, it's domestic abuse, all of, you know, child abuse, all of these kinds of things, they happen. They're a part of people's life trajectories and that that's horrible, but it's true. And so, you know, we might not want to disclose and talk about that all the time at work as a social worker or in the classroom, but but we might have got something beneficial out of that or maybe, you know, I suppose it's that post-traumatic um, growth kind growth. of mindset. Yeah that we could be thinking about a little bit more um, in the classroom. But I think we have to be able to kind of go there and have these conversations, even though they're mucky and difficult and, and hard, um, it's important to still, you know, to still have that, that conversation. Why did you choose that word? Or do you think that's, how do you think that's going to work in that practice context? Or, yeah. you know, even though it's something about something personal react, for someone. Yeah. How do you think people would react to that word? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. where do you think we need to go next? Where, where, where do we, is that part of it? Is, is, is continuing these conversations, but in terms of your own research, what, what do you think is the next phase for where do we need to go next to really understand and support or learn more? Well, I'm pretty interested in the area of supervision and I have a, a a high degree research student who's looking at this topic in the context of supervision and mm -hmm. what happens with um, people who have uh, adverse histories in the supervisory space and how, how do supervisors respond to it. And mm. I just... That's such an important area. It's so important. And when I talk to practitioners, I, I did some research on self-care a couple of years ago and everybody talk to me about supervision, right? And I didn't expect that. I thought they're going to talk to me about yoga or mindfulness or something. <laughs> and they kept telling me how important supervision was. And I just think that this um, supportive or emotional kind of content in supervision is really lacking. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need this sort of reinvigoration around supervision and it's, it's important. So we all go, oh, yeah, it's important. But actually what people are getting seems to be pretty pretty messy you know or, or pretty below par and not just in Australia in a lot of parts of the world and I think you know if we really want to you know I'm very interested in burnout and staff retention as well so if we really want to keep staff you know these are highly skilled trained professionals doing really important work if we want to keep them we need to look after them and that means we need to be having potentially uncomfortable conversations with them in supervision about things like use of self you know rather well, than just ticking boxes. I don't, know, I don't know if this is what happens in Australia, but here in America, what often happens is people get into a new job, they're in their new job for two years, they get their license, and then they're put in a supervisory role where they're only a couple of years out of school. They don't have any training on how to be a supervisor. Um, and yet they're put in that role when they're maybe, again, not feeling super confident in their own capacities. And then they're supposed to be teaching and training other people without any training on actually how to do that. So I think that's, that's at least an issue here of some of the things that I think we also, when you're talking about the importance of supervision, we don't, I think, provide almost supervision for how to do supervision. Yeah, we're not great at that here. You can do extra um, courses around supervision here, but it's not 
it's not yeah. mandated. Um, interestingly, in like the in our sister kind of discipline of psychology, if you want to be a supervisor of psychologists, you have to do additional, like quite lengthy additional training to then be able to supervise psychologists much more than social work. So, I mean, that that is an option, I suppose, but um, it might actually limit the amount of people who would be able to provide supervision at all, though, as well. So there would be downsides for that if we did that here in Australia as well. So we have some states here that require in order for the supervision to count towards a licensure that you have in Maryland, for example, and New York, for example, those are states that require that anybody who supervises a new, um, a, a non-licensed social worker has to have taken a supervision course, but right. it's very few and far between. So, and that's only for people who are working towards their license. So it's, it's not everybody. And it's an additional expense that people have to do. And, you know, social workers aren't paid great. So. Yeah. when we think about additional expense too, that often is disadvantaging a lot of people from, um, you know, already disadvantaged backgrounds as well, yeah. from poor backgrounds or yeah. might disadvantage, you know, people of color, all of, you know, and, and indigenous Australians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Already yeah, absolutely. So last comment of what do you what do you want our listeners to really take away from from this podcast you're kind of pulling it all together in your summary of of what are the main take-home messages that our listeners should be thinking about I think number one think about why you're there why are you there what is your job like why but not even what is your job why do you want to be there what are your values your ethics your beliefs what is driving you then think about, well, what in that context, this is who I am, this is what I believe, what can I bring this person? What authentically can I bring? What skills, what knowledge, what kind of support can I actually provide this person? And remember that is often in the confines of your job, like, a, you know, there might be a time limitation, a resource limitation, so you have to be realistic about that with people. Um, and then, you know, decide which well, which part of my personal values or beliefs comes comes into that and that becomes what you share and that is never a formula right it's never the same for every client and so that kind of conversation about who they are who you are and what you're going to bring into that space is an ongoing conversation and it's allowed to change on a daily basis on a weekly basis <laughs> on an hourly basis and so you really need to hone those skills of critical self-reflection um, and go and self-compassion I think sometimes as well because you're going to get it wrong sometimes you're going to get it wrong but chances are if you have put some thought into it you're not going to get it terribly wrong you're not going to harm someone um, you know if you if you bring the wrong part of yourself to that you know even sometimes we talk about um, self-disclosure and they shouldn't have disclosed that but no one's usually harmed by your self-disclosure you know that they might not build that relationship with you and want to come back and see you, but they might not necessarily be harmed by you. And so, um, you know, that at the very basic level, you can take a bit of heart there, but obviously we don't want to be harming people or upsetting them in any way, but go through that process. Think about it the whole time. What, what are you going to bring? Great. 
Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I thought this article was incredibly interesting and uh, it's a qualitative study. So for the readers or listeners, you'll, you'll get lots of great quotes um, to really hear from the students about their perspectives about this topic. Um, so it's really, really rich and uh, it's, it's a very easy read. And it, it, the, again, because it's a qualitative, you really hear the voices of the students coming through. So I appreciate, appreciate you sharing it with all of us. Oh, no, thank you. I'm really glad that you did enjoy it, actually. Um, and I've got to, to talk about it. So it's a real honor. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you all. And um, we'll see you at the next episode. Thank you. Mm -hmm.